Hello there, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today, my guest is Tom Schrader. Those longtime careful readers of you might recognize Tom from when I premiered a track of his from his feature score for Hurt. Tom's done a number of other scores, particularly in the horror genre, which coincidentally is a genre of film that for a long time he had a hesitancy towards, and film scoring has forced him to reckon with and, to the extent possible, overcome that hesitancy. Tom's also had a long career as a folk musician with extensive touring, which in my view is highlighted by playing at Lollapalooza several years back. Today, Tom and I don't particularly focus on any single score, and instead use some of his past experiences, past scores, as jumping-off points to build and create a conversation. So it's quite a wide-ranging one with respect to film and music. And it was also the first in-person interview I've done. I think this is interview 75, maybe? And 74 of those have all been virtual. If I had my way, this is how they would all be. Someone coming to my house so I can still sit around drinking coffee, exceptionally easy on my life. With that being the first one, the setup was a bit ad hoc. So the sound might be a bit different, even on my voice. We use different microphones, different room, different treatment. If this becomes more common, then I'll have more impetus to experiment with how things work. Of course, you can find out more about Tom on his social media, on his website. You can do the same for me. It'll be a busy month, a lot of cool stuff coming out. Keep those ears open. But until then, sit back and enjoy. Tom, thanks so much for joining me today in person. How have you been? Very well. Happy to be. Happy to be here. Happy you know, to be in Chicago. It's funny. We talked about doing this because you're you're originally from Chicago. We talked about doing something in person like three years ago maybe yeah so it's it's funny finally having it actually happen absolutely i've been looking forward to it and uh happy to have you uh, in chicago and uh as a a neighbor well when i'm in town now i guess but <laughs> yeah. it still feels like my city you know at heart but i remember us talking about different restaurants and all that just like giving that was one of my favorite things when i was bartending in chicago was when someone just moved there or was visiting is i would just give all my favorite places you know just a list way too long honestly because you you sent me one of those and it was like especially because i was so new to the city it was really nice the downside being of course that was maybe it was like right in the midst of covid so yeah i had this list of bars and restaurants and venues and i couldn't really go to any of them but oh yeah it, it just it's, teased you a bit, yeah exactly right? so yeah. it's it's at least been nice to have in my back pocket for times like now yeah yeah i think that conversation came out maybe from um the dark and the wicked and it's funny we were talking earlier and you told me that up until recently like you didn't even like horror movies or maybe not didn't like but like found um difficult to watch very and, difficult yeah and that's i find so surprising because your scoring work sits basically in the horror thriller genre yes so when the first horror film came through for you to score like what was your reaction to that or was there like a hesitancy of am i even the right guy for this absolutely absolutely uh well you know it was fun in or probably around 2010, I got asked to kind of dabble in a short film, and it was it was a horror film. It was to compose it, and that was really nice. It was the first time I had seen Eraserhead, and I was able to kind of set aside my own anxieties from watching the genre and just be like, this is good filmmaking. This is, 
you know, having a, a different canvas to, to paint. And, and so I enjoyed that. But then it wasn't until years later when I met Sonny Mali, and he, he asked me to actually write an original song for a film he was working on. I did that. And then he asked me to, if I had 10 minutes of score, you know, for a horror film. And I'm like, well, I guess I've done that, you know. And so, so I just came up with something, sent it to him. He liked it. Then he said, you want 20 minutes? He liked that. And then that's how, fast forward to him introduced me to Brian Bertino at Brian's Farm on set of Dark and the Wicked. So it was really something kind of a crash course in horror, put my own anxieties with the genre, just because that was the only reason. My anxiety was far too great to ever make it through. For a while, I couldn't even make it through Wizard of Oz because I was so afraid of the flying <laughs> monkeys, you know? And, and, and now I'm working with truly two pioneers, uh, or, or just just, you know, really very revered horror legends, you know? And so... I would ask them many questions, which films to watch, and and yeah, like I said, it was a crash course, and uh, now I love the genre. I, I still have to watch my anxieties, and but but the genre has been so kind to me, and and it's I, I love it. What were some of those recommended? We'll call them like entry level horror movies that eased you into the the genre a bit. Halloween. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was one just recently that I I I'm sorry I can't I can't think of the one just recently that I watched that I had to watch with the lights on. But then I went also. <laughs> I mean, it was like during the day I had every light on. My wife was at work and I was just freaking out at like two p.m. Oh, it was The Conjuring. It was oh, The Conjuring. I mean, yeah. You know, there, there are like yeah. I think in in horror. You can have like cheap jump scares, and you know they're coming, but like the the shock of it and that that stinger is enough to still make you jump. Yeah. But the Conjuring, or I'm actually I'm thinking of Insidious, but like I think the Conjuring is the same way, especially that first one where there's like a lot of really good earned scares in there, like not just the, oh yeah the and I don't even want to use cheap because like. I think that's not fair, but like the more right, right. kind of obvious used ones. Yeah, yeah. It it definitely inspired me. And that's what's nice. Now I can watch a horror film and I'm taking notes. I'm actually taking notes down to the minute of the film. Like, oh, so this is this is why this was here, you know? And it's nice. I have a uh I also I love Hitchcock now, mm. you know. Um but then even movies slightly outside of the genre, like Old Boy, just slightly more intense films than John Hughes movies, which I love <laughs> and I've grown up just appreciating. Now going into this and feeling like I'm getting an education, rewatching all of Sonny's movie or Brian Bertino's films, people who I greatly respect and understanding the the lyrical prose within both of their work is really nice too, you know, and. That kind of matches my background. It was songwriting background. I also come from screenwriting. You mm. know, um, as a kid, I was trying to pursue film, uh, a career, and uh, I was always auditioning from the age of three, doing film and theater, and always trying to write a screenplay. Did a couple classes even in college. So, anyways, it's it's nice to now be in in film and mixing my love for music and what I originally thought I was going into, you know. So having that interest in in film from obviously like a very young age, was there a point where you realized, oh, as a singer-songwriter instead, that provides me a different avenue to get into film? It, it was funny. I actually really gave up the idea of making it in film. Something happened in my early 20s where I was just saying I, I should put all of my eggs in this basket. And it was going all in on music. So I started a tour, became a recording artist, and I fell in love with the studio. I fell in love with... But I was always, looking back though, I was always trying to make cinematic music. I had a, a very large ensemble of a band at one point. Mm. We played Lollapalooza and 
had like I think 14 people on that stage <laughs> at once you know and it was just it was so fun to try to make the largest sound possible over what would have been traditional songwriting I think that still kind of prepared me you know um, both the chunks from like my early childhood trying to pursue film and then doing the band stuff you know it really all of it kind of came together once I was given this medium of film to say, go ahead, have, have fun with it, you know? And that's one of the, the interesting things that I've seen in, in your film music is, like you talked about, first getting into it by just recording an original song, but then you hear your scores for Hurt or The Dark and the Wicked, and those also have like original songs by you in them that often fall into... In, I'm always wary of genre tags because i think increasingly as as music moves forward those traditional tags kind of fall by the wayside like you see the the mixing of of genres or the lowering of those walls between them yeah further and further but i think maybe from like a high level saying you know they kind of fall into a kind of a folky countryish sound yeah and it's interesting hearing that against this chaotic like grating horror music as well so so when it comes to those songs how are you determining the the palette for the songs themselves compared to the score it's a great question because i feel like every movie it depends really right on the on i love reading the script as i mentioned earlier i've always been obsessed with script so i like to read the script digest it and almost find what feel like lyrics in the script and let the script write the song as far as you know i'll read it a few times and if there's a feeling or if i'm really obsessed with one character Mm. and then i'll go pick up the guitar and see what can come from the inspiration within that bubble that small window of just really being inspired from it and what comes out for dark and the wicked it really wrote itself because I also, Brian had such, such, he's a huge music fan. And we would spend hours on the phone talking about music, you know, and the artist he likes. And so then I would just keep listening to various artists uh, from a, a genre, a period, time period, and blending all of those. It just kind of, I feel like, What's beautiful about songwriting and the music is it just ends up writing itself. Hmm. And I try to get out of its way. And then a lot of edits and revisions and saying, what are the best verses and paring it down? That's where the real, the work comes in, you know, but start a song out with like 13 verses and then just say, (laughs) (laughs) is there one verse good enough here? And, and where it's the theme, but. So I like to start with the original song, and usually from that, I'll end up working my way into the themes Hmm. for the score cues. Okay, interesting. And do you think there's a different expressiveness between one of these songs and what you're able to do on like more traditional score music instead? What's funny is, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm always suffering with imposter syndrome. <laughs> and, and, want, and listening to your, your podcast, it's given me a lot of confidence that so many composers deal with this. One of the things that has given me confidence, in addition to your podcast, is the fact that I have almost 30 records that I wrote prior to film scoring. So every time I get nervous, I'm just like, wait a minute. All I have to do is not sing the melody I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. I can just give it to the instrument and build it from there and harmonize in the same ways as I would with a vocal. So it really comes from the same spot. In some ways, I feel like it's a bit easier until the picture gets involved. But as far as just writing the theme. uh, But then I always say, write it and let the pitcher tell you it's wrong because it's easier for me once I put the music up against the pitcher to see when it's wrong than when, it, when it's right even. You can just tell when it's not working and you have to go back to the workshop. And It sounds like you're actually 
having a lot of experiences where you're starting on the music quite early, like talking yes. about reading, reading through the scripts or, like you just said, creating some of the music and then seeing the film and, and seeing how they line up. Is yeah. that, is, yeah. Has that been Absolutely. your typical experience so far? Absolutely. I like to provide the directors with glimpses of what the score can be from the beginning, whether it's tone, mm. uh, the idea of the musical palette is something I really love doing. And I like to get that done very early, maybe even sometimes before the themes. But every movie, I guess, it's different what comes out first, you know. And But the process of starting with the script, if I'm lucky enough, is the way I like to do it. You know, hear what the director doesn't like. That's mm. equally as important, if not more important as well, is hearing this is not the direction because now we're starting to get walls and we can start narrowing it down the direction here, especially for the scores that I like to create where I'm really trying to go completely out of the box and almost disrupt the the listener's uh, mood rather than giving them something. I, I say I try to make music for the chest rather than the ears, oh, specifically okay. in this genre. I mean, is there ever a a pushback to that from the director because I you often hear different like theories or views on film music and I think one that's kind of been popularized is like a good score is one that you don't hear and yes sometimes I think that's right a lot of times I I strongly disagree with that but obviously it's always up to the filmmaker the producers whomever so have you had those instances where you want to disrupt the listener the viewer and the director is like no we're not doing that luckily not yet you know the uh, i did another film called beast mode and that was one where i was fully in every film i what's really nice is i'm creating for the director i'm not creating for my own uh release that film was interesting because it was the first time he wanted it to be very a nod to the 80s. Mm. So I wasn't able to disrupt. It was just very go into the the sounds. And that was a great challenge that I'm happy to have been a part of. But then with the other films, like you mentioned, Hurt and Dark and the Wicked, the idea of specifically Dark and the Wicked, when I went to the farm to meet Brian, uh, we hit it off immediately because we were coming at this point of view of disrupting, mm. really giving something that specifically how I presented what I was feeling from the script was something that the listener wouldn't want to hear, but they couldn't leave. Basically recreate my anxiety, recreate my panic attacks, hit people in a way that the entire time they're listening, they think they need to leave. And then play with tensions and frequencies and release um, so it's just this constant wave. And, and but then Brian was able to obviously take that and come up with crazy ideas. He wanted it to feel forever. So he really didn't want synthesizers mm. and he wanted it to be very rustic. And he said he wanted it to sound like the piano falling. And I mean, that's just reducing hours and hours and hours of great conversation with with him. and. It's really just listening to how far they can go. But it, every when I turned that in, I was so nervous. I'm like, <laughs> I went really far on this one and found various ways to create these drones without using a synthesizer or stock libraries. And so I've become obsessed with recording everything around me at all times. That's I have this tiny microphone I'm mm. holding it right now. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that. I was wondering what that was. Yeah, my, and, my dog tried to eat it earlier. Yeah, it, it looks fun. <laughs> and, and I bring it with me everywhere. And if I hear something that gets my anxiety going, I'm like, thank you now. So in many ways, horror has helped my own issues with anxiety. And I'll record it. And now I'm like, thank you for the universe sending me this crazy drone. And On that note, are there any sounds you've heard just out in the environment that triggered your anxiety that come to mind oh definitely yes all the time i was just in europe and uh, in london and the train it was just mm. 
this wild sound and I, and I have it on my phone. It was just, I'm like, this actually sounds like a beautiful horror score. You know, like this drone that is creeping in and getting larger and larger and it's overwhelming. And, and luckily now, instead of me, you know, covering my ears, I'm taking it in like a symphony. I'm like, this is <laughs> gorgeous, you know, and just hoping no one around me starts talking so I can have this <laughs> piece of beautifully recorded ambience. But earlier I heard your dog Bowie playing with the squeaky and I'm like, this would be a beautiful piece, you know? And, and so my mind is always on, always collecting the sound and it's really made life so much more fun. Life is the studio in many ways now. That's awesome. And and after this, we can we can see if we can recreate the squeaks. Maybe get a couple dog growls as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's it's interesting you say that because I was reading um what this was a while ago now an interview with Charlie Clauser who mm-hmm. in Nine Inch Nails scored all the Saw films among other things, and he's someone that has been doing the same thing since. I don't know, maybe the early 80s, maybe even longer, and has this kind of just repertoire of sounds he's found in the wild. And there was one specifically where it was also the sound of the subway, I want to say, in New York, that he oh, he yeah. captured in, like, let's say, 1986 and sat on it and, like, 20 years later found a use for it. And and so I think it's... Beautiful, yes. I, yes. I think it's so interesting having that mindset or that ear of hearing things in the wild and I, I use the wild loosely but hearing things just around you and listening for them and it's not like a, a bird song where it's something traditionally beautiful but seeing some sort of like beauty in it or or use from it or that gets your mind interested because I think it's so easy for us to instead tune out what's going on and like so often now you walk around or you see people walking around they've got headphones in and and all of that sound is completely lost instead absolutely absolutely it's really made me almost more present with life because i'm always listening and i'm not listening to block out i'm listening to capture Hmm. and i feel like with film scoring for me and and obviously everyone has their own process that's been really nice hearing on, on your podcast for me i call it painting what i love to do is capture all these sounds record all the themes with incredible musicians, asking them to do crazy techniques on their instruments. And then I love to go in with the lock pitcher and just go to town now. So I've spent from the screenplay on, you know, all of those months. Then then I actually, like I said, I went on set for Dark and the Wicked. So I was able Mm -hmm. to hear the sound of the grounds and understand this massive windmill the goats the bottles all of these things were really a part of the farm and to hear just how the wind worked out there finding this balance of like wood and metal and I had a really beautiful different colors to start painting the film with when once I got the picture I just knew where to go and take all of this like maybe 100 150 minutes worth of random noises and just paint. <laughs> and then, like I said, right, when I find out the way I know it's right is I forget that it's my work. Hmm. You know, I'm just like, oh, this feels like it's always existed, that these are the right colors to paint this with. Interesting. And and I do like that idea of especially being on the grounds on set, whatever you want to call it, because... I think it's easy to to forget or maybe you don't realize it in the first place as the viewer that a lot of the sound that you're hearing in a film is not the ambient sound that's recorded while they were shooting. Right. So much of it is removed and then put back in. So I think yes. when you have those influences from the landscape themselves, it adds maybe a bit more authenticity to to the music rather than it, it being completely disconnected from the reality that you're viewing. Absolutely. Yes. And and that's actually the word that I always stick with me is this feeling authentic right now. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, I've just learned that from my songwriting days, all the days that I was trying to write something maybe because I was into a genre, but it wasn't me. 
you know, looking back, my favorite pieces were the ones that were just authentic. So then starting a film career 15 years into this other career, I was able to say, what didn't I like about that? Or what have I learned? And and I said, it's got to come from an authentic place. So I'll decline a project or specifically if I feel I'm not bringing an authentic approach to this, there's someone who can bring that authentic side of themselves and their, add their own personality to it. That would make a picture much greater. So you just can't fake it, you know. And that's something that I was getting at a little bit earlier as well, talking about being able to express yourself in between song versus score. But that kind of adds a different wrinkle or looks at it from a different perspective is that sense of authenticity or bringing some of Tom into the music. Because obviously... When you're doing a score, it's not for yourself. It's for the director, for the picture. So I think it could be easy to say, it's a job, it's a craft. But it sounds like, while that might be the case, you're still able to channel some of yourself. Or if you're not able to, then maybe someone else is right for it Absolutely. You owe it to the entire massive casting crew it's such a production and and that's what i love about film it's a collaboration at its finest there's always someone there who can do something better than you so it's like give your strengths be open about your weaknesses and understand this is all egoless this is all about bringing the best vision together it's challenging it, there's so many songs and cues and scores you know that just end up on the floor like any any album that i did you know that just don't fit with it in the end but it's about being honest to the the greater vision and i love that coming from being a songwriter where i was just trying to fulfill my own wishes and artistic ego or whatever and then going in and just saying like this is someone else's but how do i find my voice in here through their vision because of that i've been really lucky though working with directors who have great leadership and also saying like go do what you do i do love that idea of there's a reason that the filmmakers that the director picked you to do this project because they trust you and you know this is something you don't know yet because it's as of our conversation not out but i was talking with Jerskin Fendrix about his score for Poor Things. And that was something he mentioned over and over of like, yeah, I just did a bunch of weird music and asked Yorgos Lanthimos, like, am I going too far? And he was like, no, just keep going. Keep pushing it because that's why you're on this. Like if I wanted someone that wasn't going to push it, I'd have hired someone else instead. I think with a lot of conversations hearing about temp music, temp love, that there's a constraint on composers, but it's really refreshing hearing so often that sometimes the reality is completely different, that really, yeah, you've got some initial conversations about where it's going to go. You've got the script to look at that is inherently going to not necessarily constrain you, but sort of help guide where the music goes. And then beyond that, there's a trust in you, there's an agency, and you have to, or you should be trusting that and be going with your gut. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been very blessed with that. I think it would be, it would be different. I mean, everything, you know, every project is so different. So I'm sure the time will come where a director is like, no, this is exactly what it is. And that will be, I accept that too. If I believe in the project, I say to the directors, it's like, I want to know what's in your mind. And I want you to call me at two in the morning Mm. when you get an idea. We're partners here. If you want to just talk on the phone for hours, let's do it. Let's hang out. Let's whatever. Let me understand the nuances that you're hearing because I want to recreate that. And that's what really makes it a lot of fun here. you know. And with Dark and the Wicked, it was interesting because I wanted to make... It's a really beautiful picture. And... In many ways, I felt like it was a drama. The first thing I said to Brian was, I don't want to do another horror. I don't think that this is just a horror score. Hmm. 
we could go the traditional horror score route, but I think it should be very beautiful. And then with parts of it, like I was saying, I want to disrupt that beauty. In many ways, I wanted it to be kind of a rustic avant-garde. And I started to listen to a lot of avant-garde jazz. And mm-hmm. one one artist who I got on the score was a dear friend, mentor, who recently just passed, sadly, Lars Williams. And uh, we we got together. I went and saw him perform, and he was playing with toys and all these gadgets. And he was just making the instrument speak in a different way. You know, the sax, the flute. He had a, it was like a pool noodle, it was, you know, <laughs> and these children's toys. And it was, it was just so fascinating that I knew then, I said, I have this, basically all these colors, and I knew that I needed his voice to fulfill those. And we got together and just spent hours coming up with crazy, crazy tones, long drones from the sax and different ideas with cymbals and vibraphones and harpsichords and just playing with toys and recording hours worth of noise and that's where i understood what i needed to do it was going to be like a dramatic horror film backed by almost rustic avant-garde folk jazz (laughs) you know with (laughs) classical obviously with all the strings and and that's how he he ended up introducing me to nels klein from Wilco Mm. and I knew I've been a longtime fan of both of their work and I knew that that was the voice that the score wouldn't be done if I couldn't get their voices on this and somehow they said okay and they did it you know so talking about working with Mars Williams and on a, a recent song that you released for What's the movie called? Eye Catchers? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I saw that, that one of the individuals working on that, I think Ari Levy, had yes. also recently passed. Right. And yes. heartbreaking. Yeah. But at the same time, is like having the opportunity to, to work with them to create music that's recorded, that's out there, that's working on or or supporting or supplementing uh, an even larger artistic project like does it also make you feel like that kind of memorializes them as well absolutely absolutely and you know with Ari we had spent uh many years playing and then with adulthood you know you just end up moving to different cities you don't get to play as often and it was very special I would I was in town and he had just moved back to Chicago and I said, I have a couple films, you know, I'm working on. And we were able to play again, Ari and Stephanie Lee, who's an amazing violinist. These are the people who I grew up playing with. So to be able to now be adults and to be able to talk about, they were talking about their children. I was sharing stories about my wife, having dinner, and then like, oh yeah, let's also go do this fun <laughs> thing as well. But we we're having so much fun talking about life and catching up. It was such a beautiful, beautiful moment. And it was difficult, a feature I'm working on right now. Ari did all the strings on that as well, Ari and Stephanie. And it was very difficult to go in and start painting while hearing his laughter and all that. But then when the piece is done, taking the my personal, you know, love out, hearing it, being able to celebrate that, it's very beautiful to have that memory, you know, yeah. and now I can remember how joyous it was to say, like, do whatever you want. I want your voice on this and to hear, you know, how the things he came up with and Mars was the same thing, you know, just I went back and, and listened to the score for the first time in mm-hmm. like three years and to just hear Mars's voice all over that. And uh, a few weeks back, Mars and I hung out and, and we were able to just talk about that. And we got nominated, you know, for a couple of awards. And yeah. we were able to set, watch the, the, the ceremony together. <laughs> we had so many moments from Dark and the Wicked and... Anyways, it's really, it is. It's a beautiful thing that we, it captures the thing we both love doing most. So yeah, I, I hold it dear. And, and 
it doesn't make it easier though to be honest sure just to be honest it's still two people i love so much and i just i knew i know there was a lifetime ahead of us of more films yeah and that i don't know that's something that's it's just so difficult but it's nice that you kind of have their voices figuratively literally sort of immortalized in this and these projects you're able to work on absolutely and you know it was funny actually and they were both incredible sense of humor. So while, you know, while I, I talk about, obviously, the sadness that comes with our life and mortality, it's like, gosh, I had so much joy doing both of those. And when I was just talking to Mars a few weeks back, he was showing me um, things he's working on. I was showing him. And at that time, something came out of the scariest films of all time. It was like 250 people or 250 films were put up on this this scientific study in <laughs> yeah. the UK. And they were checking heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, everything. And Dark and the Wicked ended up ranking number 14. Huh. Scientifically of scariest films of all time. And so I showed Mars, I'm like, we did it. We did it. You know, and we were both cracking up because the whole time we're like, that's going to get up. You know, it's like... When you're working in horror, it's the beauty comes in the yeah. in the the fright and and the weirdness and so yeah, a lot of celebrations come with with it, you know. I mean, is that because I think Sinister was number one on that list? Yeah, I think it was Sinister or Saw or not Saw. Well, yeah, Sinister got it right, and yeah. uh, Host was high up there as well, and incredible like modern films made the list i was super happy to see is that list like something that just inherently terrifies you of of i already like have my issues with watching horror here are the absolute like worst things possible absolutely there's one side where i'm like okay so now we have the films i should not watch but then also (laughs) i'm like i have to this if i want to keep getting better i need to get my notebook out and watch these you know but that list was, I loved it. Because when I sought out to do specifically Dark and the Wicked, I was really obsessed with how do humans react mm. to sound? What do we like? What don't we like? What frequencies do we find unsettling? Those were the guidelines that I set for myself. It was, okay, this is a tough scene. So now I'm going to leave this frequency out or... You know, and I just had it. I really studied that. So when the actual scientific proof came out, I'm like, oh, I did my job. <laughs> I did it. You know? <laughs> like... Now, I don't want to kick the anxiety or the imposter syndrome back up, mm. but seeing, you know, the, the scientific success of the scariness, does that then, like, create a higher bar for you as you go, like, oh, okay, the dark and the wicked overall was and that's successful from that perspective, am I going to be able to keep that up in each other film that I do, at least where it calls for it? Where it calls for it, yeah. The the film I'm finishing right now that I just mentioned, it's a heavy, heavy film, and the films that allow me to take that on, I love it. The film after that I can't really talk about, but it's going to go a totally different direction. Mm. And again i want to i want to incorporate that at all times the idea uh, specifically with horror but i won't be using say like the devil cord or things like that you know um i want to kind of break some maybe musical tropes that i've been enjoying you know but but the next one i feel like it's almost dark and the wicked on steroids it's very unsettling (laughs) very the whole movie i just wanted to just hurt the listener and uh, that sounds really (laughs) cruel doesn't it i don't mean it as cruel. i guess i do but but it's also something about you know the genre i'm a lot of times i did listen to um you you mentioned him earlier charlie uh, clauser clauser yeah your your podcast with him and i feel like we came from similar places where it's like some movies are you're you're writing for the character Mm -hmm. and even some scenes breaking down in the scenes some are for the character some are for the viewer and you have to that balance 
in this movie, I went heavily, the one coming out, heavily from the viewer's experience using tones that represent the characters, but really what is the viewer's experience here? So I'm excited for when that comes out. I'll, I'll send it your All way. Right, sounds good. <laughs> and how are you determining whether something should be from the character for, for the viewer or a different perspective entirely? You know, I think what the scene calls for and what I feel the scene needs while watching it as far as if the performance is as incredible as Marin and Michael Abbott Jr.'s, the actors in Dark and the Wicked. And I mean, I, I've been really blessed with, I think the actors and the performances ha across the board have been in really incredible. And a lot of the times I try to back off of it and let them take it. But then when you have, you have to like step in, there's a hit, there's a jump, there's things like that. Mm that's when I know we're going for the listener or the viewer. So it's, again, that idea of playing with release and tension and keeping the listener engaged, but also like, okay, you know what? I've, I've been really quiet. There's nothing here. I want them to, even the director and producer to think <laughs> I'm working here. So I'll put in something really small just to bring the listener back. So I'll take on the listener's point of view. Mm. But also, you know, it's about... I've been blessed with working with incredible sound, sound designers, sound mixers, and I try to provide more for the director, the producers to have fun with. Provide them with more than it's probably even wanted, you know, and I always say, move what you want. You can take it out, even if it's my favorite scene. This is your movie, yeah. you know, so... For a 90-minute film, I may provide them 90 minutes worth of music if that's what they're okay with. I'm sure there's some directors that are like, just give us 40. Yeah. Come on, guy. <laughs> you know, but, but I like the idea of complete artistic freedom and give them the paint and the, the tools and materials that I had and let them say what works in their vision. And going back a little bit, you, you mentioned working with sound designers, sound mixers. I know... Joe Stockton, you work with him all the time. Uh, yeah, mixing and maybe sound design as well. And I, I know Joe, so I know he does like a lot of different things. Wears a bunch of different hats. Yes, um, but looking at a little more, a little bit more broadly, like on these scores, it's not at least from as far as I know, it's not like you're working with big orchestras. You're doing a lot of the playing yourself, or you're bringing in these other musicians that that you know that are playing right. one or a couple of instruments too. And so it, it keeps it a bit smaller, more intimate, and, and you end up working with a lot of the same people over and over. So is having that sort of consistency and collaboration and working relationships as that moves on, does that make it easier for you to create these scores and having that trust in your musicians as well? increase the quality the breadth the scope of what you're able to make absolutely and in so sunny malhi i think joe and him worked on family blood for mm -hmm. the first one i believe i might i may be wrong but they go far back and uh that was the song that i sent the original song for you know okay and then uh, hurt i co-composed with cj johnson and then joe mixed that then Dark and the Wicked, Joe makes that. So it's this ongoing relationship. And now Joe is not only mixing this next film, but he's stepping in the composer hmm. chair too. It's It's been this ongoing relationship I, and eye catcher as well. Yeah. That I, I'm really comfortable having Joe mix. Because I'm also, that's how I was saying with the collaboration there's always someone who's better at yeah. something than you. So I I just give Joe this madness, this <laughs> absolute madness, and say, is this okay? And he's like, I got it. And it comes back, and it sounds beautiful. You know, he's just truly, I call him the wizard, and it's such a joy working with him and hearing what he can come up with because he understands now when I, s I send him 70 or 80 tracks, and one of the tracks is just a dog toy. <laughs> he <laughs> understands what to do now with that, you know? So, yeah, this is my first time 
co-composing again and uh it, it's nice to do that and joe's also edited the film so like you said he play, wears yeah. many hats it's really nice gives me such confidence every movie knowing i'm like at least joe can fix this before <laughs> the director even gets to it you know and i love that because it also goes back to what we were talking about earlier of like the filmmakers giving you as the composer agency and trust and then you take that same agency and trust and are putting it in the people that you're working with because i think absolutely i'm sure there there are plenty of situations where the film's composer wants something done a particular way and and that's how you know the violinist is going to play and that's it. right but here it sounds like there's there's the latitude the agency and that kind of trust creates something even better absolutely and and that goes along with the musicians who you know i'm so blessed to work with as i mentioned with like a long career of touring and recording mm -hmm. you know i've just worked with hundreds of amazing musicians and each one have their own sound and voice so my goal is to do throughout my career from here on too is to keep it where it's like once i get the pleasure of working with an artist say here's the theme go for it you know this is what's written now have fun do what you feel like how haven't you used your instrument now how can we make your instrument unique to you mm. how and how can we if it's a cello you know just all the various extended bowing techniques or or you know can we put an ebo i don't um prepared piano or things like that you know I think really asking musicians to utilize their own voice, bring out that inner child. It's so easy to just, as we get older, to just come in, try to save money, which is good. Yeah. But also, you know, the luxury of doing independent filmmaking, I'm not renting out massive studios where a lot of it I can bring my you know set up and just let them have fun again and that's what i really like from every musician and i'd like to continue using all the bandmates i've had over the years you know for whichever film calls for their voice but then also look up the legends who i yeah. like who i mentioned earlier and reach out and just see if they'd be interested in doing a project and let's see them become a kid again I guess personally what I really get out of it is just having fun again with it, especially in all the dread. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that if scoring for film reaches the point where you're not having fun, where the people that you're bringing on to collaborate with you aren't having fun, is that kind of the point where you take a step back and go, is this what I want to keep doing? Well... I, I I truly just hope it never gets there because it's such a dream. Yeah. Every film. I would like to think of myself as finding a way to have fun and connect with the music. Sure, there, there are a lot of moments in every film where I'm like, this isn't fun. I, right now sure. I'm talking about the fun parts, but there's many times like, I, I'm not built for this. I'm a folk singer. <laughs> you know, what am I doing here? But I find a way to reconnect with it, and it always comes around. And I don't know if there's anything as gratifying as seeing the work come together and to fulfill someone else's vision. Mm. That's the other thing, you know? It's like that token at the end. You know, with all of my records, I'm always still thinking, like, oh, I should have read, I should have redone those vocals. I should have added this. Why did I do this? But when you're catering to someone else's vision... It's a lot easier to just hand it off and then see, like, you're happy with it? I did my job. Yeah. And, and then I get to just sit there and enjoy it and think of it as a third party. And, and I still can't do that with my records. But with <laughs> watching any of the films I've worked on, I watch it like I'm a kid. Just like, wow, I, I can't even believe they made it sound that good, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. So I think we're, we're running maybe near the end at this point. I did want to take, like, a drastic hard detour here i think your your wife is in like the fashion industry right yes so yes. something that i've i've been a little interested in lately is the music for 
fashion shows as well. So like Cliff Martinez and Nicholas Winding Refn did uh, Touch a Crude for Prada. The electronic artist Sebastian has apparently been doing music for Yves Saint Laurent like for years and he just released the compilation that's like four hours long of all of his music. So it does kind of fall into this broad umbrella of music for somebody else, music for media. Is that something that, given your connection to that, that's ever kind of crossed your mind or your path? I would definitely be down for it. Georgia is, uh, she works for Ford Models Mm. and uh, she runs the digital division and has an incredible amount of creators she works with. I went to Fashion Week this year and uh, Milan and Paris and it's been nice to check out this other world I would love to get into it right now I think you know I'm on the side I'm doing songwriting with other artists Mm -hmm. as well so I'm always down for a challenge if something makes me feel a little awkward I'm like let's dive into this (laughs) so you know if Prada comes asking absolutely and there's a great Rolodex of musicians who will make me sound decent and you know and uh but um they haven't come calling yet but but i'm ready i'm ready (laughs) awesome (laughs) yeah well tom it was great chatting to you thank you face to face the first time so we got over the the tech issues and everything else but like it was really awesome having you come down sitting in my basement with uh you know my dog on the couch behind us Hopefully not making too much noise. Uh, Make some more. Let's record it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It was a great time. And I love the podcast. Thank you for doing it. Hey, I, I appreciate it. That means a lot.